Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three and often four friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. I'm your host, David Lucarelli. I'm John Carson. Dave O'Leary. This is Mike Gavigan. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at the quote-unquote new tunes on the first Motley Crue compilation album, Decade of Decadence. But before we do that, uh, the rock world had a couple of notable losses this week. Um, Mike, maybe you should start talking about a local Pittsburgh hero that was instrumental uh, on the glam rock scene. Uh, and uh, you probably know more about him than, than I do. So you should, you should tell his story. Sure. Uh, you know, back in the old days when, you know, people used to camp out and wait for concert tickets, you know, and the, the ghetto streets of Oakland, you know, for three days in a row and deal with all the homeless people and Lord knows what else overnight. Um, I met a guy uh, along with a whole crew of, of, of musician friends that you know, actually became musician friends later in my life, um, particularly uh, Bobby Lamonte, who was a guitar player. And we were all waiting in line for Boston, you know, concert tickets in 1987, just waiting there in Oakland on like Forbes Avenue and spending three days in a row partying and hanging out and surviving on the streets waiting for these tickets to go on sale. Well, um, that was the day that I met Bobby Lamonte and also a bunch of other guys that he had played with. And Bobby was in a band uh, at the time called Trash Vegas, um, who were playing, you know, legendary venues in Pittsburgh, uh, particularly, you know, the decade. Uh, Bobby was also in a band uh, by the name of Science Fiction Idols. Um, and he was just one of those guys that, you know, he looked like a rock star. He wrote good songs. He was heavily influenced by, you know, rock and glam, but also, you know, pop music as well. Um, you know, the fact that the guy was waiting for Boston tickets, but he was also a huge New York Dolls fan, you know, always sort of stood out to me like, wow, okay, you, you can kind of, you know, you know, ride both sides of the fence in a way. But anyhow, um, I had done shows with Bobby uh, when I was in a Kiss tribute band, and he was just a cool guy and uh, such a major influence. I looked up to the guy and uh, he passed away, uh, you know, due to complications uh, due to COVID. And uh, it, it's a major loss in terms of, you know, a lot of friends that I have from Pittsburgh and a major loss for the Pittsburgh music scene. He was just one of those guys that was a great frontman, a great songwriter, had a great sense of humor. And, um, you know, as we get older, we're, we're losing some of those guys. And it, it, it's really sad. But, uh, you know, to Bobby, from me and I'm from Pittsburgh. Yeah. And he also was involved in a sci-fi rock musical that he wrote and produced, I think. Yeah, he was. Yeah. After the, the science fiction idol stuff, he was doing uh, more like, you know, person like musical kind of things. And he was always creative in that way, you know, always developing. And, um, you know, it, it's a major loss. So yeah, I, only, I only met him a couple of times that he was I automatically felt, you know, he, he seemed like such a nice guy for such a guy that had so much charisma. You know what I mean? He could have been a real jerk. You yeah. know what I mean? But he wasn't. He was actually a really nice guy. Very nice guy. Yeah, absolutely, John. So for those people that might be listening to this and are unfamiliar with Bobby's stuff, uh, what are a couple songs that you, you'd say they should check out, Mike? Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole you know, first Trash Vegas record is killer, um, but also, too, the Science Fiction Idol stuff, which you can find on, um, you know, obviously online. Um, he wrote a great song like I Love Your Mouth, you know, <laughs> which is, is a great song title, but it, it's got such a great, you know, T-Rex kind of stomping groove to the guitar riff and the, uh, you know, it's almost like a Kiss-like tune as well. He just, you know, he had his finger on the pulse in terms of, you know, how to capture like, you know, the 70s 
rock in the 70s glam stuff and and just put that all into a, a package and you always found great guys to play with so i would i would definitely shoot for if you can find the first trash vegas record for sure but uh if you, you know want to get a real you know sense of what bobby was about check out the track i love your mouth it's just you know it, and, then, and then delve in from there okay and then the other loss uh the the rock world suffered this week was pretty much the quintessential rock video vixen from the 1980s, um, both a rat uh, cover girl and also in all of the key Whitesnake videos. Um, Tawny Katane, maybe you'd like to say a few words about that, Dave. No, just what you said is very, you know, very, uh, very well put. It's, you know, she was very much a staple of that scene at that time, you know, who amongst us at our age group doesn't remember that first Rat album cover? You know, fantastic album uh, to begin with, you know, Warren D. Martini, uh, honorable mention there, but, you know, there she was, you know, for guys like me who were probably, I don't know, 19, 20 when that album came out, fantastic cover, right? Uh, definitely a memorable cover. And then, like you said, with the, all the White Snake videos and you know, she certainly had a colorful life after that. You know, she's certainly a person that was very storied and had a lot of tragedy herself. But uh, um, it just kind of seemed like maybe the last couple of years she was looking to move in the right direction with her health and her life. And it's just tragic that she's gone and she's only 59 years old. It's 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 a loss. For sure. For sure. And to me, I think the quintessential video is the here I go again one that certainly fueled uh many a, a, a night of teenage lust for myself and any other red-blooded American headbanger at the time. And you know what? I know this is an audio podcast, not a video, but, ju but judging uh, from Brother John's face, I think he was probably right there with the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> smile. That smile oh makes a thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> My wife just overheard us and she just did a whole little dance like, oh, Tony Katane. And she's mocking us, just so I you know. I bet. I bet. We were boys once. So You've got to give us a, a little bit of a uh, here, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Right, exactly. So getting on to decade of decadence motley crew comes off their by far most successful album and tour uh to date they re-sign a new contract with electra records for 25 million dollars that is contingent upon all four original members staying in the band which will become relevant later and they decide to put out their first Greatest Hits compilation, Decade of Decadence, which features a number of remixes, um, some of their biggest hits to date, and about five new or new-ish songs, some of which have appeared in other albums up until then, but weren't part of the official Motley Crue catalog. So you get uh, remixes of Livewire and Piece of Your Action, a remix of Home Sweet Home, which I believe Nikki actually laid down new bass parts for, uh, and they released a video for that. The song actually ended up charting higher than the original Home Sweet Home did. Um, but what we're really going to talk about, I guess we could mention there's a live version of Kickstart Your Heart, which certainly captures the spirit of that song in a live context. But the main thing is five new songs, uh, starting with a Tommy Boland cover, 
teaser? Uh, the first thing about it is I thought, wow, uh, Vince is, I didn't realize it was a cover. I actually had to look that up. I didn't know, I don't know enough about Tommy Boland to really know that. So I was like, wow, that's a really neat melody that Vince created there for that chorus when, you know, and she's got no, you know, whatever. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And then I realized he's just taking the part from the, uh, original. Um, but it's a good song. It fits with their, um, their history, where they're coming from, you know what I mean? I mean, they, that sort of, you can tell that that kind of stuff informs at least early Motley Crue, if not Motley Crue now. Um, it's, it's actually a good choice. It's a good song. I liked it. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, fun. I mean, I wouldn't give it like a 10. It's not one of my favorite Motley Crue songs, but it definitely is strong, even for a cover. Dave, your thoughts? Hey, they do it. They do it justice. They made it their own in their own way. Yeah. That they, did they uh, take a lot from the original? Sure, they did. Um, but you know, unlike a lot of other covers, we've seen other bands do that, turn it into something that's pretty much a train wreck. Uh, this this honors the original intent of that song very, very well. So I like it. I think it's a seven. I, I don't know. Is this a song that was on that soundtrack, the Ford Fairlane one? Is that? No, this was on uh, Highway to Heaven, Stairway to Hell. Uh, oh, okay. album which came out as part of the make tj martell make a wish foundation thing that was okay. tied into the moscow music festival it was an album all of covers by bands that participated in that festival yeah and i think i think rock and roll junkie was the song that was on the the ford fairlane said right yeah right. Yeah. yeah yeah i can uh, i agree with dave in terms of the you know the, it's it's it, it's a great version of, of the original in a way. Uh, you know, for those that don't know, you know, Tommy Boland was one of those sort of, uh, you know, I think think back to the '80s when there were guitar players like, uh, you know, Steve Vai who could you know fill in any band, Alcatraz, Whitesnake, you know, David Lee Roth. You know, Tommy Boland was you know kind of played a similar role in the '70s because he was in you know obviously original bands like Energy and Zephyr, and he played with Billy Cobham and. Then it became like, you know, the fill in after Joe Walsh had exited the James Gang. And then he filled in after uh, Richie Blackmore exited De Deep Purple and did a killer album uh, with Deep Purple called uh, Come Taste the Band, which I think is you know, probably one of his, his, his best albums. Um, but he also did solo records. He also did, uh, you know, co-headlining tours with Jeff Beck. Uh, he's one of those guys where you, you always kind of hear his name and you wonder, you know, what's it all about? And you, you buy the record and you go, okay, he's, he's got, you know, got a lot of diverse kind of, you know, you know, background and playing. Uh, but, you know, at the same time too, he's also the master of what is known as the Echoplex, which is the tape echo that, you know, guitar players use um, as like an echo delay, you repeat kind of thing. And he made, made it sound kind of really spacey in a way. And I think Motley definitely, you know, nabbed a bit of that for, for this track as well. Um, you know, it, it's, to me, it's, Teaser is one of those tracks on, on the first Tommy Boland solo record that really you know, emphasizes you know, what he was all about in a way. And, I, and it's no wonder that you know, Motley decided to, to cover this tune. Um, and we, we were doing a little pre-chat before this, but I'm pretty sure, and I'm sure somebody could you know, fill us in on this. I want to say that Nikki was involved with either backing or doing the research for the Tommy Boland ultimate uh, box set that came out uh, in the late 80s. I'm pretty sure he was one of those people that sort of drove that project with... Uh, uh, Tom Zutat from uh, Megaforce. I could be wrong, but you know, we shall see. But still, it's a again, it's it. You know, the original version is cool, and this is a absolute you know perfect you know tribute to, to Tommy's playing and to Tommy's uh, skill. And you know, I, I like it. I, I knew it was a cover at the time, but you know, I think they did a great job with it. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the main difference being the fact that the guitars are very clean in mm. kind of almost a T-Rex early Alice Cooper yep. kind of way where they're a little saturated in the way that they're hitting the tape, but they're not really distorted. And then Motley took those riffs and actually added some, uh, you know, typical Motley distortion to them. Um, you can definitely see where uh, Tommy Boland's uh, influence on Nikki in terms of the songwriting. I mean, a line like a hint of ruthlessness or just a hint of ruthlessness sparkling in her eye is the kind of quasi literary lyric that Nikki would love to implement in many a Motley Crue song. Um, even uh, that riff, that uh, you can see where that is sort of an influence on riffs like the main riff in City Boy Blues, which is in some ways a slightly more sophisticated reworking of that same riff. Um, so the the other major difference is that they cut the second they cut the first half of the second verse out mm -hmm. in this cover, uh, <clears throat> which is sort of an old Gene Simmons trick: <laughs> is that you make the first verse twice as long as the second verse, and then you jump right back to the chorus to keep the song moving. And uh, I think it, I think it works. I think it works well. Um, that brings us to rock and roll junkie. Uh, no, I, it's there. It's not a bad song, but nothing really st stood out to me at all. I didn't really like it. I was more interested in the fact that it was part of the soundtrack to Ford Fairlane. And I was trying to remember that movie and that movie was, I remember that movie being advertised quite a bit in comic books at the time when I was reading it, but then it going nowhere when it actually, um, you know what I mean? No one knew any, you know, uh, it was Andrew starring talks, Andrew Dice Clay, right? I don't think I ever saw yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That movie was like advertised to all get out in the comic books I was buying at the time. But like, literally, that's what I wound up thinking about more than actually the song itself was the movie Ford Fairlane. So it's not, it wasn't, it's not a bad song, you know what I mean? But it just doesn't, nothing stood out to me about it. Dave? Uh, my feelings are the same as, as John's. I, I would say that. You know, it kind of just plods along to me, the first part of the song. It was like a throwaway track that you know, they didn't really finish on another record. But I think what saves the song for me at all is that last part of the song. That last maybe third of the song, um, I, th I think it redeems it a little bit, but not enough to me to make this a standout track in, in Motley's catalog for me. You're talking about that breakdown that they yeah, do that where they kind down. of start playing a different riff. And, yeah. yeah, I like yeah. that part of the song moving forward, you know, towards the end of the song. I like that part. Um, but, you know, that part aside, it's just it's just not overall a strong enough track for me to make it one of my Motley Crue favorites. Mm -hmm. Mike? Yeah, I think my takeaways from it, you know, I, could, I wasn't a fan of the song when it was released, but now that I listen to it uh, recently and, you know, thinking back to other artists that I like, um, it kind of reminds me of Use Your Illusion, uh, Guns N' Roses era in a way, where you've got like, you know, mm -hmm. the, that sort of, you know, uh, Galleon Kruger chorus sound on the bass and uh, some of the guitar tones kind of sound like, you know, it could have been something on Use Your Illusion, which I found refreshing and interesting. Um, it's the same kind of Tommy Lee groove on drums, which is always killer. Uh, but then also, too, the, the main riff in the chorus reminded me of um, Kicks in a way, you know, the band kicks, like songs mm, that blow yeah. my fuse. I mean, it's weird, like, you know, 
whether those bands, you know, listen to each other and they were influenced, you know, who's to know? Who's, who's to actually, you know, put the finger on and say, yes, that sounds like it. But to me, I was thinking, okay, you know, it, the contemporaries, Guns N' Roses, Kicks, you know, it's there. So I found it refreshing to, to you know, to see, see those things in a way, you know, in an audio kind of way. Um, and also, too, the solo has a cool um, H. Fairley sort of staccato, you know, attack at the beginning. Yeah, from Firehouse. I heard that, too. Right. And then the last thing, too, would be the, uh, you know, sort of reintro, which is very, you know, Scorpions, you know, Rocky Like a Hurricane in a way. So, you know, whether or not it's the greatest song in the world, you know, it's up to you, but it works as a song. And, you know, I, I found it fun to sort of revisit those sort of other bands that were, you know, of the era. And, and it made me think of other artists, which, you know, is always cool. I mean, come on, you know, everybody's influenced by everybody, whether one admitted or not. Yeah, interesting call about uh, Use Your Illusion because there's that super heavy chorus on the bass. Yeah. Um, this is one of the few Motley songs I think that actually suffers from overproduction in the way that only a soundtrack song can. You uh -huh. kind of get the impression that they had way too much time to mix <laughs> this song and they pulled out all the bells and whistles and ended up with something that's so washed out and undefined and has so much stuff going on in it that the song itself almost gets lost. Um, it's, mm. it's interesting that it name checks the cat house uh, because that was the happening rock club at the time uh, that was being run by Ricky Rackman and um, Tammy, uh, Tammy yeah. down from faster pussycat. And so, you know, that's kind of an interesting reflection of the scene at the time. Uh, let's see. Okay, moving on. Primal Scream. Uh, this is actually my favorite of all of these new ones, which I don't know if that's blasphemy, but what's funny about it, okay, uh, lyrically it stands out. The one line that really stood out to me, if you want to live on your own terms, you got to crash and burn. Um, the flange on the the flange on the base, I kind of dug, but what's what stood out to me, the intro sounds like uh, the song Obsession by the Information Society, hmm. which I'm trying to place when that song came out or whatever. Okay. Um, it's almost like they tried to write a new wave song. And I know that they're sort of informed by new wave a lot of, in terms of like the way they sort of reinterpreted punk. You know what I mean? Power pop and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Power pop, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really an interesting, it's almost like a throwback, but at the same time trying to stay modern, but it's 91. It's right before, is this when grunge hits? Has grunge hit at this point? Um, the plane was starting to come in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, grunge was starting to hit, but you know, I was thinking about this. It was rock and roll itself was becoming in some ways very multicultural compared mm -hmm. to where it had been before. Mm -hmm. So you had, you know, this is the era of bands like uh, Faith No More and Rage Against the yeah, Machine yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, In Living Color and, or I mean, Living Color. So, so I do think there's a great quote by David Lee Roth from around this time where he said something like, you know, I'm not quite sure what rock and roll is anymore. I think rock and roll is a Hispanic guy who wears his hair in dreadlocks and eats pizza while he watches anime with his Japanese girlfriend, you know? <laughs> and I, I think that, that what he was saying in his own sort of smart ass way was that all of these different cultural influences were starting to 
you know, become uh, a part of rock and roll. And I think this is definitely somewhat a reflection of that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's my favorite of them. I mean, it's it's almost like they're trying to write a new wave song. I mean, it definitely becomes very Motley Crue-esque, um, you know, during the <clears throat> the verses and chorus. Um, and it's got that sort of gang chorus and it's anthematic. It's very metal, but it just has sort of elements of like almost like being informed by new wave at the time, um, particularly with that flange bass sound. You know what I mean? That's a very... Um, you know, new wavy sound, although they're, they're a good six or seven years after new wave, you know what I mean? But that sort of dance ace of bass and the information society and all those bands are sort of also coming around at that same time. So interesting. Dave. I love this song. It's one of my favorite Motley Crue songs. I, I love, of course, you know, I'm a big Tommy, Tommy Lee fan. So I just love his groove, love his swagger on the song. You know, I think he really sets the tone of the song right out of the gate. Um, all the things that John said, I think this song, you know, could have fit easily in its own way um, on the Feel Good album. Yeah. You know, uh, it feels like, you know, it, it, you know, it may have had some seeds in its its beginnings there. I don't know. I haven't looked it up to, to see. Um, but it's got all those, the, the right elements for a, you know, a great crew song. It's, you know, it's got the swagger. It's got the playing. It's got that, you know, it's got that attitude, you know, that, that audience thing that's going on there that, you know, it's really, to me, it's written as a song that they want to do that would translate translate well live, like kicks out my heart, that kind of thing. Um, it stands up there in, in that and in, in, in that top 10 list to me of those must hear live Motley Crue songs. Yeah, all right. Mike? Yeah, again, to, you know, uh, sort of piggyback the, the multicultural, you know, approach. Also, you know, bands at this time were trying to sound a little more funky in a way. This song, Red Hot Chili Peppers were huge. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know everybody's you know trying to you know look back, and there's also kind of a Zepp, uh, you know, a Zeppelin uh, White Snake vibe to the you know the you know the octave riff um, in the main riff. But also too, it reminds me uh, there's those descending lines um, after the chorus that remind me of the band Extreme in a way. You know, there's it's mm. it, it's all cool, and also too on on the Tommy vibe. You know, it, there's nothing better than a good ride symbol in, in a riff. You know. You can, you know, you cannot get enough ride symbol, in my opinion, you know, the bell of the ride. And I've worked with drummers who are like, oh, I don't want to do anymore, you know, bell of the ride. But like, listen, it works. It's done. It's on Aerosmith albums. It's on, you know, Guns N' Roses records. It's on Motley Rounds. Do it. You know, don't be afraid of the bell of the ride. It works. You know, don't, you know, so, yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it's also... <laughs> No, I hear you, man. I mean, it is, it's funny. We, most musicians, most, most musicians want to back off now, especially at our age. Do you find that musicians tend to want to like, oh, I'm doing it for the betterment of the song. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas instead yeah. you, you almost want to say like, no, 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 go nuts. You know, give me that John Entwistle bass line. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, you know, but nothing's, yeah, nothing's off the mark these days, you know, for God's sakes. I mean, it's all yeah. been done. So, you know, don't be afraid of any of it. Right, but, sure. Yeah, point being, um, I remember when this song came out, I want to say, was this the single off of this record in a way it's released as, as a single in the video? Yeah, right? it was the... Yeah, it was the really the first single. They released Angel as a promo uh, ahead of the album, but they didn't do a video for it. Okay. So this was technically the first single. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's cool. I mean, it's it's definitely, I agree with, you know, with David in a way. This is probably should have been on uh, the Dr. Feelgood record. It's, you know, of that caliber. It should have been there. It, it's equally strong. And, you know, I'm not sure what the timeline was in terms of, you know, Dr. Feelgood and and this uh, song. But, you know, it, it's, it's it, to me, it's, 
probably an undiscovered, you know, classic Motley Crue song for people that aren't aware. Yeah, I don't know how undiscovered it is because since it came out, it has been a part of the live set ever since, I think. Um, I'm not kidding. Yeah, they, they play it to this day at every show. Um, I agree with you guys. It's the, by far the strongest of these songs. Mm -hmm. And um, interesting that it name checks Arthur Janu or Janoff, uh, who's, you know, uh, Janoff said, if your meters are red, you're going to blow a neurotic fuse. He's the guy who literally wrote the book about primal scream therapy. Yeah. And, you know, while the chorus is in some ways a little reminiscent of Shout at the Devil, um, the call and response thing, I think it works on its, on its own level uh, because in much the same way that looks that kill translates so well into the concert experience because you go to the concert as a young guy looking to see girls that have looks that kill you go the, to the concert to scream and you know it's nikki's insight that that the reason why that feels so good is the same reasoning behind primal scream therapy as a psychological release um and john i think you're right the key line you know that pretty much sums up motley's philosophy uh, is if you want to live life on your own terms, you got to be willing to crash and burn. And now, okay, going back to primal scream therapy, isn't that to essentially reconnect you with the fact that you're screaming because, you know, your first scream that you say when you're out of the when when you come out of the womb, you're suddenly faced with real life reality. You're on your own, and uh, yeah, um, could that be our? You know, that's sort of what. You know, you got to scream and shout and let it all out or whatever. I mean, it's 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 interesting. I I almost sort of wish that they could have done more with the idea of what primal scream therapy is, but then it's a song. So what do I know? Yeah, well, it's the idea that yeah, you you let out all of the repressed emotions that you feel by screaming at the top of your lungs or screaming right. through a pillow, and then you um, become more self-actualized or what have you. John Lennon was a big fan of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some pretty dark lyrics, too. I mean, Nikki talking about his parents. Mama tried to be so perfect. Now her mind's a padded cell. Uh, yeah. You know, what with the history of mental illness in Nikki's family. Um, uh, so, you know, but but unlike Girls, 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 it, it, it never becomes nihilistic. I mean, it, it's dark, but ultimately life affirming. And I think that's what makes the song so great. Well, well Dave, too, to your earlier point is yeah it is it has been a, a set stable in fact even i just kind of looked it up you know to shake the, the cobwebs out of my memory but they were even doing it with in the karate the karate era you know they mm. were they were that was their show closer yeah hmm. okay well can, can i ask a question though uh what was the timeline in terms of recording this i mean they, they, they listed as a, a new track on the album sequence right yeah but you know when was it recorded do we know was it after feel good or I think it was recorded after Feel Good. I believe Primal Scream, Angela, and Anarchy were all recorded in one block. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, speaking of, Angela. A, a good song, but nothing amazing about it again. It doesn't, I, I mean, I, I was playing around with the idea of like maybe Angela is a female stand in for Los Angeles and you'll be there for you and stuff like that. And then I didn't even buy that. So it's a good song, but it, it doesn't really got to sort the chorus is catchy, you know, but again, it doesn't really stand out to me. Fair enough. Dave. 
Yeah, it's interesting you just mentioned the timeline and when these may have been recorded because when I heard it, one of these that struck me was, you know, that chorus and, and I'm thinking, what, isn't that, wasn't that maybe the seed, a strong seed for what became Don't Go Away Mad? Oh, yeah. The chorus, the chords in the chorus are very yeah, similar right. to Don't Go yeah. Away Mad, for sure. Right. Whichever so came first. This was a, you know, it was a, a precursor to Don't Go Away. This was a working demo at some point. And, you know, as, as we all know, you take certain parts of certain ideas you have and they become something else, you know, later on. And I thought maybe this is it. You know, this is uh, what Don't Go Away Mad looked like in its early stages. But if it was recorded after the fact, it's interesting that they would revisit that, that riff. It's pretty obvious, actually, to me. Hmm. But it's a good song. It's decent. Not one of my favorites, but it's okay. Yeah. Mike? Yeah, I mean, my takeaway, too, is I like the fact that it's sort of playing around the, the major chord, you know, uh, if you're playing around, you know, like, you know, a chord, and you're kind of doing, like, the stonesy kind of thing with, you know, riffs, I mean, it, that's cool to me, you know, I, I, I was totally influenced by that, um, but also that, that, that descending riff, that, -da that, is, that yeah. is totally from some other band's song, and I, I'm still to stay trying to figure out what song that is, it's not, it's not like, Hound Dog, it, it's like some classic riff, and I, I cannot figure out who did that riff. It's either ZZ Top or, you know, but you know. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think they originated that, but it's, it's, I was thinking about this song. I don't think it's a total throwaway. Mm -hmm. I think there's some interesting things going on. Um, you know, because now Nikki's at the point where he's, married to Brandy Brandt and no longer quote unquote too young to fall in love and <laughs> talking about having a real relationship. Um, I think this song kind of is an example of Nikki having almost a Japanese approach to songwriting in the sense that it's not a completely original song, but he's able to musically and lyrically take things that are cliches and twist them just enough for, so that people that are familiar with the cliches hear what he's doing and their ears perk up and they go, oh, well, that's interesting, but it's still close enough. It's still within the rock milieu that people mm -hmm. that are just into rock and roll recognize it as still being rock and roll, right? Yeah. So, you know, you have the winds cry Mary, obviously by Hendrix, and he does the variation and the storms scream Angela in as part of the chorus. And then um, the other line that's really interesting to me in the song, because I, I think the way that Vince sings it, it doesn't really get across the meaning is like a supercharged rocket ride, I knew they'd add gasoline if they had the time, right? And to me, that line begs to be, and all those supercharged rocket rides, I knew they'd add gasoline if they had the time, right? As if to say like, yes, when I was single, I was able to have sex with all these women and groupies and it was great, but at the same time, the only reason they didn't burn me is because my lifestyle didn't give them the any chance to do so, you know? And that's a kind of like self-awareness that you don't find in too many other rock lyrics, you know? Um, so that's what I like about this song. Final song, cover, Sex Pistols, Anarchy in the UK. Uh, it's, uh, I don't like it. I find it almost self-parodying i don't i mean it's it's not a song you should cover 
I mean, it's like doing like uh, London Column. You know what I mean? I mean, they, they're, you know, you're sort of like, or um, one of my all-time favorite songs is uh, New England by Billy Bragg. And I, I thought to myself, I could never do this song because there's no way I could reinterpret this to somehow fit American, you know what I mean? And so for some reason, I feel that Anarchy in the UK is a very British punk Sex Pistols song. Now, according to Vince Neil, John... Johnny Rotten or Johnny Lydon apparently said, oh, you did a great job on it. Yeah. Now, the, but, the only problem with that is that he nobody can ever figure out if he's being sarcastic or not. But yeah, okay. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it just, I, I don't, I mean, they replace, you know, UDA and the all the IRA with American things. The PMRC, um, the DEA, and the CIA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's all right, but it just... Um, I don't know. It doesn't seem like something Motley Crue could, they did. They just don't really pull it off. Like I just don't buy it. You know, I guess is the problem. Like to me, it seems almost like they're making, um, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't work for me. I mean, they, they do a solid job of it. You know what I mean? I mean, Vince really does sing it, belt it out and all that kind of stuff. And it's totally, it's totally a solid take on it, but I just don't see why they would do it. You know, there's gotta be other things that they could have covered besides that because that's a very you know what i mean that is a song that is very related to the sex vessels you know what i mean it just seems like why would you bother to try and reinterpret it it's like doing and then i got into this whole thinking thing and like there's a band called stiff little fingers that does um you know they have a song called alternative ulster which is a song that would never work by a band covering it here in the united states because we don't even know what an ulster is you know what i mean but it's it's um you know, or another song called Suspect Device, which is, again, something that we don't really understand because the phrase suspect device is a very British Irish term, meaning a device that looks like it, it could explode or whatever. And it's like it could never be covered in the United States. But then they do. They have a live album out that I have that does a song called No Sleep Till Belfast, mm. which is a cover of No Sleep Till Brooklyn by the Beastie Boys, which totally works. But again, that's a song that is associated with an American band done by a British band that writes songs that are could never be covered by an American band because they reference too many things that are um, Irish or what, you know, Irish, English or whatever. So that's actually the rabbit hole I went down when I was listening to the song was who's who's allowed to cover what songs and, you know, that kind of stuff based on subject matter. And can you reinterpret that kind of stuff? I don't know, man. Dave, I'm done. I think they should have quit while they were ahead with teaser. Um, but you know, to John's point, I, I think you know there's certain songs you just say, yeah, yeah, you can record them, but really don't, you know, stare to heaven type of thing. And that's so funny. I was thinking about that as an example of, an, of a song that should nobody should ever try to re-record. That's the first song that came to my mind. It's like, yeah, sure, you may be able to do a, a serviceable job on it, but why? Um, Leave it alone because it's just it, it's it's a statement unto itself and it's already you know it's it's been said as well as it's ever going to be said probably um, I think you know and I'm a fan of the Sex Pistols and I know Nikki is so just made me a little curious as to maybe why they didn't go a little deeper into their catalog and find something that would be a little bit more appropriate than that song you know it's just it, no future bodies. I mean, bodies sure. would be great. I mean, people knew that. Sure. You know, yeah. I just think that's that's kind of hollow ground song. I think I should have just left it alone and moved on to something else, found something else. 
to you know to to pay that tribute to if you would but um yeah i'm not a fan of this song at all either mike yeah i'm again i'm not really that i'm not really not a fan of, of this version of the song and i really kind of think it's unnecessary but at the same time in those days in, in a live presentation there were bands like metallica and, and crew and, and they were playing you know cover songs you know in, in part of their live set and it was kind of cool to do that you know it, we obviously spoke about you know their cover of jailhouse rock on girls 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 and how unnecessary that that might have been um but it was a thing it, you know it, you know in a way you know we're going to date ourselves but like you know these bands bands like the sex pistols at that time were you know only you know decades you know away in terms of you know where their origins in a way so yeah, that's a good point. They're about 12 to 12 years, maybe 13 years after the recording of that song. Yeah, which really isn't that long amount of a time. But, um, you know, at the same time, too, this is also off of the heels of the Moscow Music Peace Festival, where, you know, Skid Row covered Holidays in the Sun. Mm. You know, so, you know, who's, you know, telling who what to do or who's kind of giving people the ideas of you know, what they're going to do on the next record in a way. I mean, you know, but I agree, like, I think Holidays in the Sun was a much more appropriate choice and much more clever choice than this track you know if you're going to cover a tune then you know it kind of go left field in a way you know, don't go like down the obvious road you know because in a way you're, you're kind of selling yourself short like anybody could have done this song you know and, and no amount of cussing <laughs> i mean i think vince drops at least four or five f-bombs in this song no amount of cussing is going to make the song any better and, and no amount of you know, changing of the lyrics and make it, you know, UK to US is going to make the, you know, this cover version any better than the original. Yeah. I, I think their heart's in the right place. Um, but again, it, it's like, you don't need to remake Casablanca. This, this is pretty much the definitive Sex Pistols song. And if you can't do something that's wildly different than the original in a reinterpretation, and you can't do it better than what they did, then why try to do it at all? Um, interesting that Vince did it in one vocal pass. Um, I've seen it done live and it's been fun, but it, you know, it's certainly not, not anything that I'm ever eager to hear them do if they don't happen to pull it out. No, and for me personally, I think that, you know, anytime a band would like, you know, cover a song like this live, it, it becomes like token in a way. Like, you know, it's such an easy audience grab. You know, anybody could, you know, do a cover tune and draw them in. But like, I'm there to see you guys play your songs. I'm not there to see you guys, you know, be clever and, you know, come up with some cover tune. It, it becomes a time waster in a way to me. You know, I, give me your stuff. You know, I paid my money to see you guys play your songs. I love your songs. I'm not here to see the Sex Pistols, you know, or your version. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> That's a that's a good question. What's a band that's done a really great, I mean, cover of something, you know, that's really made it their own? Hendrix, you know, all on the watchtower. Knocking on heaven's know. door. I yeah. Would say. yeah, that's true. Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You is, I think, better than the Prince version. One of the, the great things about rock and roll is the way that you have reinterpretations of musicians from different cultures right so like all the great british bands that took the delta blues 
and made that their own and then redefined it as hard rock. And then all the New York bands that heard the British bands and took that and, mm -hmm. and heard it differently and made their type of music. So like, I, I get the fact that Motley Crue was influenced by the Sex Pistols and this is a nod of the hat to them, but I'd rather just hear that influence in their own music rather mm -hmm. than this kind of a cover. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. So on that note, everybody, have a great Mother's Day. And uh, we'll be back next week to talk about John Karabi and the self-titled album, Motley Crue. <laughs> <laughs>